welcome to the Zen Founder Podcast. This is a place where we have conversations about mental health and entrepreneurship. We have a pretty broad conceptualization of what mental health means, sometimes depression, anxiety, sometimes relationships or physical health. The goal here is to bring some calm into the crazy roller coaster of ups and downs that is life for many entrepreneurs. I'm your host, I'm Dr. Sherry Walling. I'm a clinical psychologist and an entrepreneur, married to an entrepreneur, live in the world of entrepreneurs, and I'm so pleased that you have joined us for this conversation. So I was outside the other day and I had my coat on, uh, it was unzipped and I was just in jeans and, and the coat and I was, I don't know, I like checked the mail, I was moving the trash cans around, I was kind of moving stuff around. Uh, I didn't have gloves on, right, or a hat or anything. And the coat, again, wasn't zipped. And I started, I was like, it's kind of getting cold. I was like four or five minutes. I was like, man, I thought it was kind of a nice day because it was sunny outside, right? Minneapolis is tricky that way. And I'm just like, ooh, this is feeling a lot colder. I think I'm I'm kind of becoming soft. <laughs> you know, you live in Minneapolis for six years. You get used to some cold, but this is starting to get rough after five, six minutes. So I go back inside and I check the temperature that feels like is 10 below zero. <laughs> and I thought to myself, you know what? Your whole mental model has shifted of what cold is. Your cold radar is different than it used to be. Because if it had been 20 degrees, you know, above, uh, this is Fahrenheit, obviously, I would have probably almost been in a heavy sweatshirt. I could have done it, you know, because it just doesn't, not for an hour or something, but for a few minutes, it just, your whole frame of mind changes. Like, like that's all... It's a lot of habituation to cold. Like, That's what it is. Are you sure you wanted that level of cold expertise? But, you know, we, br- we bring it up and then, you know, someone in the audience is like, I'm in Arizona and it was 72 that day. And it's like, I almost died. Yeah, but it's like, yeah, but we, li- we choose to live here. Like, it didn't bother me. I'm not bringing it up to say, oh, look how whatever. I don't know. I'm bringing it up because it's like, oh, that's just fun. It's an interesting the way we adapt, adapt as humans. Yeah. And I remember the time you and I got in the car in Fresno and the interior temperature of the car said 123 degrees Fahrenheit. And, and then the, it like broke, like the thermometer broke and it wouldn't work for a day. And again, it's like, well, so you turn on the AC and you go swimming, right? And here it's like you wear a coat and you remote start your car. It's just not, not that big of a deal. And we could, we, you and I could live anywhere. And we choose to live here, you know, even though it's cold a couple months of the year, because it's just... It's a great place. Such a nice place. People, just be happy where you live, man. And if you don't, <laughs> find a new place. Wow. Like That's free-flowing. This is great advice. <laughs> you know, like the situation, change it, man. You're good enough. You're smart I, I enough. love advice that comes out in sound bites. <laughs> it's available stitch it on a pillow. Stitch it on a pillow. It's like, the, this is the Tony Robbins episode of the podcast <laughs> where we just Rob give... Just- High level advice that doesn't actually, you know, get you anywhere. So yeah, good advice is hard. I think one of the problems with internet advice is it's out of context and it's a soundbite. It's clickbait. It's intended to be something that is either provocative or so overly simple that everybody is like, oh yeah, obviously. Yeah. General advice. The problem too is like general advice from someone who's really smart and has seen a lot of things, I think can be helpful. I think of Jason Cohen, Heat and Shaw, people, you know, that I look up to, a chunk of their general advice applies to the majority of cases, you might say. But then internet advice is like often rando person who is acting like they start a business and are an entrepreneur when they kind of haven't and they're kind of faking it. And then they're giving entrepreneurial advice that they've read somewhere else, right? Or heard somewhere else. And it's even to me, it's like a copy of a copy of a copy. And it's so muddied down that it's not helpful, can be destructive. Yeah. I guess I'm, how do you parse good advice from 
not helpful advice. How do you know the difference between somebody who's actually done it and someone who says that they've done it? Yeah, that's, and that I've written about this actually um, in a tweet thread that I accidentally have deleted How come you now. deleted all your tweets? <laughs> <laughs> oh what, do you, what do you have to hide, Mr. Internet Advice Man? I will tell this story another. I'll tell it over on my podcast. It is too painful to relive. It was a bug in some software I was using. All tweets suddenly deleted. Well, you didn't have many, so it doesn't matter. Only like 9,000 or something, yeah. So how do you, the good advice from bad advice, to me, it's like considering the source, you know, and it's finding out, like, I don't listen to many people. Like a lot of advice I see on the internet, I'm like, yeah, I don't know. If I don't know them, I'm not going to listen to their advice. If I know them, then I can start digging in and you kind of have to vet somebody, right? It's like, there have been people that I've met where they present as, as this kind of fake, oh, I've, yeah, I've started and exited four companies. Someone told me that. And I was like, that's great. Like, tell me about that. And as we got into it, it's like, oh, he was like engineer number three at the first one. And then he was engineer number one at the second one. So we had some stock options. Then the third one was like an agency that exited for, you know, a couple hundred grand, which is not nothing, but it's not like he had presented that he was like this epic startup founder. And for me, it's just asking questions. I think that one of the challenges I have with what you just said, though, is sort of like, if you don't know them, then you know, they're not valuable as a contributor to you. But obviously there's lots and lots of really wise people in the world that you don't know, or even in the entrepreneurial ecosystem who maybe aren't as focused on SaaS or are in some, you know, parallel conversations. Depends on context, right? If we were at a conference and I was a speaker and I was sitting at a table and there were speakers I didn't know who said, oh, I've heard about Tiny Seed and I would think about doing this with it. I would definitely hear them out. And then I would probably almost ask for references or like, tell me more about your background. I'd love to hear it. And then almost check up to verify that that's like, before I make a big decision based on advice, I want to know the source. Online is different. Running Drip, running Tiny Seed, running MicroConf, like not a week goes by that I don't get an email of like, I have some advice for you on how you should, you could make MicroConf 10 times bigger. And I'll read through it and I'm like, this is garbage advice, you know? But when I was younger, like 15 years ago, people would send this to me and I'm like, oh, this person must know more than I do because they're giving advice. And that's not true. Oftentimes people don't know more than you do and yet they're giving advice. So that's where I keep it kind of, I I hold these things loosely until I can, I, I think I just have a better read on who they are and what their experience has been. I think the other thing I wrote about too was, I say success is hard work, luck, and skill, the combination of those three things. It's my own personal kind of belief. And I do think there are startup founders out there who have had a big success and got really lucky and then come and say, hey, this is how you should do it. And if they haven't done it twice, you don't know. You know, you don't know if it was them that did it. Jason Cohen, Heaton Shaw, David Cancel, right, have done it three, four, five times. So it's like, they probably really know what they're talking about. Someone who's done it once, it's like, I don't know, maybe. You know, so you could either philosophically give them the benefit of the doubt. Or in my case, seeing how many people on the internet say things that they, they're just really bad advice. Now and that I know it's not good advice, I kind of err on the side of you kind of need to prove yourself before I'm willing, you know, over the long term before I'm willing to, to listen. Because there's plenty of advice out there, right? Why not take a smaller chunk of it that you know is really good? What's the downside? Yeah, I find the best advisors in my world are the people with whom I have relationship with. So where they've got some skin in the game for what they tell me. And I've been seeking a lot of advice lately because I'm working on this book launch and I'm working on pre-launch packages and just thinking about how book launches happen in 
the year 2022. So I've been talking with a lot of people and people who have done books launches or who have expertise in the publishing world. And I think the best advice that I receive or the advice that I trust the most are the people who I know are going to have some like connection to my work and my book when it comes out. So the, they're the people that I'm going to give the shout out to. They're the people that I'm going to see in six months or in a year. And I'll be able to look them in the face and be like, hey, your idea was amazing or mm, it didn't really work. So there's there's a an ongoing connection or relationship. I like that. I also think solicited advice, I take a lot more if I ask someone for advice, I'm looking for it. And unsolicited feedback or advice is usually really, really low on my list to accept. Well, we wanted to talk about something today that people often give soundbite advice about. And that is this very often used term imposter syndrome. And I think a lot of people have a lot to say about what imposter syndrome is and what to do about it. And, you know, we're talking today because this was a conversation that you and I were having in our other life, you know, our private life as married people, in which um, you were talking about some frustrating advice that you had heard people giving related to imposter syndrome that you felt was pretty counterproductive. Yeah. And that won't be this whole episode. We have, I have two thoughts that came across my mind, two pieces of bad advice that I think we should cover. And then I have four pieces of what I think is good sound advice or some ways to kind of attack imposter syndrome, get around it, work through it. Because I think most, if not all of us experience that, maybe not the, I think if you have a huge ego or if you're a sociopath and maybe you don't, you know, experience imposter syndrome, but, or have never experienced it. But I think most of us at one time or another have, have done it and had to work past it. But that first piece of bad advice that just rubs me the wrong way is fake it till you make it. And I think this goes back to what I said earlier of there's a lot of people on the internet faking it till they make it. And to me, look, you can have some confidence, but don't fake it like I've started and exited four companies. That's just lying, you know, or look, I'm an entrepreneur and I've, you know, had these businesses that really that you're faking the numbers on. I have heard of a podcaster who publicly claims numbers and revenue numbers and stuff that someone on his team left that and basically said, it's not true. He's just lying. So you could, you could justify that with, we'll fake it till you make it. But it's like, no, that's just dishonest. Yeah. I think don't lie is probably like a, a good rule of thumb in general as humans in the world. Yeah. But there's something about it that it sounds like you don't like because it, it kind of bolsters you up or inflates you, this fake it till you make it perspective. Yeah. And I think there's a balance of like, if, if you're new and you don't know what you're doing, then don't go, you know, reading three Seth Godin books doesn't make you an expert on entrepreneurship and marketing, like reteaching and regurgitating something someone else has said without doing it or having experienced it, I think is a problem. I think there are already too many people acting as experts who are faking it and maybe they'll make it or maybe they won't. But I think it's just detrimental for the community in general to not have you know, they're again, coming back, like there are plenty of smart people who have done amazing things and like their advice, they don't have to fake it because they have already made it. What's the barrier event or what's the line of entry for you though? Because one of the ways that you're talking about this almost sounds like it's binary, right? You, you've arrived or you've not arrived. You have, you have something valid to offer or you don't. You have enough experience or you don't. And I think 
the challenge with a lot of these things is it, it's not binary. There's not a line. There's not a test that you take. And it's like, okay, now I'm a real founder and I'm a real entrepreneur and I have something legitimate to offer. So when I hear fake it till you make it, I think I do think about somebody who's on that like continuum of growing, of gathering more experience, of learning, like we all are in relative ways. I think that's a good point that you make. It's like faking it is probably a continuum as well. If I feel scared and unconfident and I fake that I'm not scared and I and I am confident, that's probably a good thing in a lot of situations to not appear to be rattled, right? Like when I'm up on stage or when I'm in a meeting or whatever, a stressful situation. So yes, faking that. But I think it's it's maybe the intellectual dishonesty, right? Of like faking, faking your, like exaggerating your experience, certainly exaggerating your numbers is, is an issue. I think we've already dismissed that. As, I think we could just put that yeah, in the don't lie category. Like, don't lie, yeah. <laughs> like, do not, do not deceive. Do not misrepresent. I think it's perhaps the lies of omission that I hear mm. or the lies of like, I've heard examples of someone's, again, it's that, well, I, I start, I exited four companies and it's like, okay, so technically he did exit those companies, but he didn't actually start any of them or something. You know what I mean? It's like, you've kind of omitted, it's a white lie, but it's like kind of a big deal when you dig into it. There was someone else where they say, it's like data can be kind of easily manipulated. And if you're not listening, you don't notice, but someone was doing a talk about their SaaS and they're like, yeah, and our, our GMV is, is 10 million a year. And someone was like, whoa, they're doing 10 million a year. And I said, no, GMV, like that's the gross merchant value they process. They take 3% of that off the top. But they wanted to throw out this really big number. So they're making $300,000 a year, right? But they wanted this number. And it's like, it's, I'll just say you're almost trying to trick people a little bit, you know, or with podcasts. Like you and I both know that you can have a podcast. It's hard to count those numbers. It is. And you can say, I'll hear people say, we get 500,000 downloads a month. And it's like, whoa, that seems, so you have 500,000 listeners. And it's like, no, we have, you have 500 different episodes over years and years. So really you may, you could have like 20,000 listeners and get half a million downloads a month. But if you say that half a million number, it sounds big, right? So these are things where it's like, I don't, I don't know if you're, if you're saying it and someone who isn't in the space doesn't understand it, it feels a little, it feels iffy to me. I don't love it. Yeah. So coming back to this idea of fake it till you make it, I, I think that is a helpful strategy for a very time-limited dose. <laughs> so I would say that's a, that's a helpful strategy for an evening where you're trying to get yourself internally prepared to maybe do something hard or interact with some heavy hitters in your particular world. I think that when we're talking about fake it till you make it in a way, we're talking about how to, what to do when you're inside your internal experience feels incongruent with the room in which you find yourself. So when you are walking into that speaker center or when you are walking into that pitch meeting or into this moment when all of your insecurities are just loud and yelling in your head, then that can be a helpful little short term like, okay, breathe, act like you own this, act like you've already been accepted, act like you belong to be here, even though you don't feel like it. And I think that's helpful in the short term. So maybe there's like a five hour expiration mark on that particular piece of advice. But as a strategy for being accepted as an expert, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that's not a helpful way to overcome imposter syndrome. But I think what you're talking about when you criticize that in, in many ways is not overcoming imposter syndrome. It's like catapulting yourself 
beyond your experience to be perceived as an expert, which is in some ways a, a little bit of a different beast. The other piece of advice that I think is probably not helpful is, well, no one knows what they're doing. So you belong. We're all imposters, right? Which is helpful to hear in the early days, right? Of like, oh, well, if no one knows what they're doing, that makes me feel better. And I think people are trying to say it to make you feel better. But that's not actually true. Like, we don't know what we're doing when we start. And five years, 10 years, five companies, 10 companies in, there are people who know what they're doing and who are probably better at it than you are if you're earlier. I, I know what I'm doing more today than I did last year and a lot more than I did 10 years ago, just because of experience and pitfalls and mistakes and successes and just all the learning that I've had. So I think the potential kind of negative implication of no one knows what they're doing is, I don't know, maybe it implies that we're all all always at the same level. It's like if you're a beginner, you're at the same level as, you know, again, Jason Cohen or some incredibly successful founder. And I, I just, I don't think that's necessarily accurate. I think a more realistic picture is that you, you will know what you're doing, at, you know, after you have more experience. Yeah. And once again, it's that, that problem of the binary, right? You know what you're doing or you don't know what you're doing. And of course, there's a whole lot of gray in the middle of those two ends of the spectrum. I certainly bump into this in my world because I now function really as an executive coach and my level of experience and training and the discipline with which I have come to my work is pretty different than other folks who might use that same title. And so there are times when I am keenly aware of the differences between somebody who has accumulated a significant amount of experience and training on the edges, right? Training in the really hard cases that my offering I think is quite different than folk who, you know, may have a lot of wisdom and a lot of like accumulated experience, but not quite the same rigor with which they have had to think about their work and the way that they deliver their services. Right. You have a PhD, extensive training at world-class institutions in psychology and a decade plus of incredible experience doing it. And then you have people who are executive coaches who took a six-week course on Udemy or something, right? And then they want to give advice. Is that, I know you're not, I, I'm being the, the hater today, right? I'm, I'm not poo-pooing people. I think people got to start somewhere. And if they have something to offer, great. Yep. Because I also think that lots of, lots of wisdom and lots of ideas exist in ways that gatekeepers don't recognize. And I think what you and I probably need to own at this point in our careers, in our mid forties, well, late forties for you, but um, not for me, um, is that we, we kind of are gatekeepers. And if we're, if we're pretty uh, rigid about who gets a seat at the table and who belongs and who doesn't, like that's, that's a problem. I think, I mean, this is a little bit off of our main point related to imposter syndrome, but I think those of us who have been around have the responsibility to help people come behind us and have a place where they don't feel like they need to inflate who they are or what they know, where what they do have, what experience they do have, what ideas and insight they do have, has a place to be celebrated and, and invited. I love that point. And I think to that end, that's where like, you know, I do a live stream called MicroConf on air twice a month and obviously podcasts where I have conversations and then MicroConf where we have, you know, in-person events and we have attendee talks and then we find and raise people up. And that's something that my, me and my team have, I would say, gotten quite good at. And it wasn't something we did early on, right? The first two MicroConfs were all filled with these rock stars, you know, the all entrepreneurs, everybody knew. And as it's gone on, I feel like we have raised people up and you're right. 
you know, there's gatekeepers and everything, right? And that we didn't start that way, you know, 10, 15 years ago. But I like your your thinking of that, of kind of raising people up as you go. I think the other comment that I want to make about your your concern related to the the line of nobody knows what they're doing is really to remember that that sense of growth mindset, right? I think that's that's the solution to that contextless, potentially bad piece of advice is to realize I don't know yet, but I will know someday, or here are the things that I'm learning. I mean, I think even people who are really early on in their journey, you know, they can talk about here's what I'm learning, here's what I'm reading, here's the knowledge that I'm acquiring and how I'm acquiring it by, you know, kind of citing their sources and talking about their learning, rather than feeling like they need to inflate or artificially buff up their sense of experience and knowledge. That's the great point. That is, it's like a sense of humility, a posture of humility and learning rather than look at how great I am. I've done stuff that I actually haven't done, you know, or I know stuff that I just know because I read this book. That actually brings me to the first, you know, I said I had four pieces of advice that I think are, you know, I've heard that are legit. One is that you do belong, or at least you will learn. And I think of someone coming to a microconf or, you know, I think actually of Anna Mast, who started Boondockers Welcome with her mom. And she listened to Startups the Rest of Us for years, never came to a microconf because she said, I just didn't feel like I would belong, you know, because she's a woman, because, you know, whatever, further on in her career, whatever reasons. And then eventually we had a scholarship program. She came and she was like, it was incredible. Everyone was so welcoming and I did belong. And so I just want to communicate to people like, you do belong. And nothing that I said at the top of this episode is saying, you shouldn't be a startup founder. You shouldn't try to be a startup founder. You shouldn't be a podcaster or try. None of that applies to that. I was genuinely talking about exaggerating, right? Acting like you are more than, more than you are because you do belong. And even if you show up to an event or a conversation and you are the least experienced or the least knowledgeable person there, you still belong and you will learn and you can learn. I sat at business of software table in 2009 with Dharmesh Shah, who, if he's not a billionaire, he's a hundred millionaire, you know, uh, centimillionaire at this point, Jason Cohen, Derek Sivers, on and on and on. All these people that were wildly more, I was the least successful, the least competent person at that table. And yet I went and I, I get, had a posture of learning. Joel Spolsky was there too. I was just asking questions like, how do you know this? What did, you know, it was like, I respect, I gave them respect. And I ask questions and guess what? A, some of those relationships have lasted till today. And B, I learned so much and I have so many memories from those conversations of it changing my thinking and helping me become part of who I am today. My personal perspective on how to tackle imposter syndrome is pretty, you know, somewhat similar to what you just said, which is have that posture of learning and of humility and of curiosity. Because at the end of the day, the thing that will counteract your own internal voice that tells you you don't belong there or you shouldn't be there or you should be quiet is the sense that whatever it is that you have to say or the message that you have to offer is really not about you. It's in service of someone else. It's in learning where you're learning from someone else. If you adapt that other orientation, that is where I think imposter syndrome goes to die. You just can't stay in that thought cycle when you are really focused on what value you can bring or what you can learn from the wisdom that's around you. Yeah, I think that's good advice. I have another point that I have used myself over the years, and it's to figure out how to surround yourself with 
people whose opinions you trust. So this can be a mastermind, a co-founder, group of founder friends, someone who can see into the work you're doing. And when you feel like an imposter, that you can ask them and that you will believe what they say, good or bad, that you say, I feel like I'm out of my league. I feel like I'm putting out crappy content. I feel like my business is not growing fast enough. You know, whatever it is, you feel like you're imposting. I just invented a verb. That's a nice word. Yeah, it's a terrible word. But whatever <laughs> it is, you know, that you feel like you're screwing up, get a sanity check from smart people that you trust and then believe them, like actually listen to them and don't say, oh, they're just telling me what I want to know. Find people who won't just tell you what you want to hear and then use them in those times. I feel like that's essentially like collect some data. Yeah. Get some real numbers on this question. So I think asking that trusted group of people, if your output or if your ideas or if your expertise are, are where you think it is, getting that sounding board or second perspective is really important. The third one I thought of is to reflect on your accomplishments so far. And certainly if you're just getting started, you know, you may not have many, but maybe it's, hey, I've read these books or I went to this event and met these people. But as you get a year, two, three into whatever your journey is that you're, you're trying to get better at, you know, you might still feel that imposter syndrome. I know when I started the next company, I started Drip. I had major imposter syndrome. Can I do this? Did I just get lucky with the previous? Am I really, you know, am I a good founder? All that stuff. And I don't remember how I handled it because it was so long ago, but I think it's helpful to look back and maybe make a list of everything you've done in that field that's been amazing. Everything that you, you know, pat yourself on the back. Like this is the time. A lot of us don't take compliments easily. We don't go bragging on social media about what we do. This isn't that. Maybe just go to a notebook and privately write, these are all the amazing things I did. And if no one ever reads them but you, I, I think it can help show you that you've come a long way. One of the things that I often talk about, especially as it relates to preventing burnout, is celebrating successes. And I think one of the genre of successes that can also be really important to celebrate is the effort. Once again, taking a page from the from Carol Dweck's work on growth mindset, it's not so much maybe just all the things that you've accomplished, but the things that you've tried, the things that you have learned, the, the skin in the game. So the effort that you have put towards your goal is also worth celebrating and acknowledging. And the last piece of advice that I was thinking about that I think is helpful is so hard to implement, easy to say, so hard to implement. So I am curious to hear your thoughts on, you know, how specifically you've helped coach people through this, but it's do your best not to compare yourself to others because there will always be someone who is a little more successful, just did it a little faster. You are an imposter compared to someone on this earth for sure. So it's, but how do you do that? How do you become comfortable with your own accomplishments and with your own skill set and your own, you know, abilities in that moment? Honestly, I think the best way to do that is to really have a, an intentional gratitude practice. Because when you are aware of all of the good things that are happening in your life, when you're really well-grounded in all that you are happy about, connected to, grateful for, it's pretty hard to like to crap on that, right? It's pretty hard to be critical of your own life when you're truly grateful for it. And so I think that is very helpful in killing that comparison monster is to you know, focus on the things that are really working well for you. Because at the end of the day, it's not, it's not a competition. It's about you creating the life that you want that is satisfying and interesting to you. And if you have that, but you just don't have as much money in the bank as somebody else, or you don't drive a McLaren, like, then it doesn't matter. Sometimes I think 
other people can show us what's possible, but that's inspiration, not comparison. So if you look around and see, oh, they're, they're taking this risk or doing this trip or creating this piece of art, or they're doing this thing, how interesting, I wonder if I could do that. I think that's a helpful use of another orientation of, of looking to see how other people are spending their time and their lives, how they're finding joy and meaning. It's framing it positively. It's looking mm-hmm. at something and saying, I'm inspired. I want to go do that rather than I haven't done that and they're better than me at it. I'm not good. And it's putting a spin on it. It's good advice, doctor. You only get one life. You better make it count. YOLO. <laughs> Surely that's available on a pillow. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I bet. And on many license plates. Well, thanks for joining us today for our my rant at the beginning and then our uh, hopefully advice that you can take with you about imposter syndrome. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in two weeks with a new episode of the podcast. In the meantime, feel free to check out zenfounder.com for lots of resources about the kinds of conversations that we have on the podcast. You can get information about working with me, about maybe joining a Zen tribe. It's sort of like a mental health boot camp for entrepreneurs. We also have lots of content on our blog, links to resources in our courses and books for sale. So check us out there and we hope to provide anything and everything that you might need to make the entrepreneurial life a little bit easier.